This podcast is made possible through the support of AstraZeneca. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest today is Dr. Ashley Hennigan, Assistant Professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Texas at Austin. Much of Dr. Hennigan's work focuses on improving cognitive outcomes in people who've been treated for cancer, especially breast cancer. Her studies have found that listening to music and practicing Kirtan Kriya, a very melodic meditation, reduce cognitive problems and improve quality of life in women treated for breast cancer. She joins us to discuss her research. Dr. Hennigan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So to start, could you describe for us some of the cognitive problems that people in your studies experience? What are we talking about? Sure. So a lot of people, when they go through cancer treatment or breast cancer treatment, um, experience cognitive changes. And sometimes these emerge during treatment and sometimes they emerge after treatment is over. And they are pretty unique to the individual who's experiencing the cognitive problems. But most often we see um, difficulties with um, remembering words or remembering where you put things, uh, you know, so memory is often a problem. So focusing and paying attention and things like executive functioning, which is our ability to um, prioritize things or uh, multitask or, you know, do these complex kind of higher order thinking that really gets us through most of the day. Let's see, processing speed is also something that people have problems with. So a lot of times we hear this term uh, chemo fog or, you know, like this fog. Chemo brain. Chemo brain. Yeah, exactly. So I think what people are usually trying to describe is this like slowness to process. So that's what in the cognitive world, we call that processing speed. So um, it's pretty unique to the individuals, but those are kind of the big categories of problems that we see most often. Okay. And how common are these? Because... The studies I've looked at, there's this huge range. And I know I know personally people who have had these problems. I know other people who've received chemotherapy who haven't really had the problems. So do we have a handle on that yet? Sure. Yeah. So the big range of numbers that you're seeing a lot of the time is due to how cognition is measured in a study. So depending on how it's measured, it kind of affects what that percentage is of people who are affected. It's also affected by when was cognition uh, measured. Did it happen before treatment started, during treatment, or after? So that affects the numbers too. But in general, there's kind of an understanding or acceptance in the field that there's this cognitive impairment in about 30% of patients even before treatment starts. So Perhaps it's not just the treatment, it's something about the cancer pathology or, you know, the the psychological and complex experience of being diagnosed with cancer. And then during treatment, that percentage goes up a lot because of all the treatments, all of the, again, complexities of going through treatment. So that could, we can see numbers up to 75% of people experience cognitive problems during treatment. 
And then once treatment's over, you know, after that first six to 12 months, a lot of that spontaneous healing of the brain happens and a lot of those symptoms resolve for most people. But in approximately a third of our survivors, we still see some cognitive impairment or chemo brain symptoms, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The number varies quite a bit um, depending on, yes, time of uh, assessment and then how is it measured. Just to elaborate a little bit more, in some of our studies, uh, or most of our studies, we use two different ways of measuring these clinical symptoms. First, we use performance on standardized cognitive tests. If you've ever gone through like an SAT type test, which a lot of us have, um, that's what I mean by standardized test. There's the same test for all people, and there's usually some comparison to population norms to judge if there's an impairment or not. There's also people's perceptions of their cognitive functioning. So we call that a self-report instrument or a patient-reported outcome. So a lot of times that number is higher if we use those uh, patient-reported outcomes compared to the standardized testing. Sure, that makes sense. I do want to follow up a little bit about causes because I have seen those studies too suggesting that just the sort of the emotional, physical, mental shock of a diagnosis can cause some cognitive impairment. Obviously, you're going to become preoccupied with everything that goes along with a cancer diagnosis. And I've also seen studies showing that hormonal therapy like tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors can cause this because they've seen it in people who take hormonal therapy but haven't been treated with chemotherapy. So, do we have a better handle on that, on, on some of the causes? Like, can we s estimate X person had hormonal therapy but no chemo? They have this percent risk of cognitive impairment, or are we not quite there yet? We're not quite there yet, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and it, as as you know, breast cancer treatment is so multimodal. So, so many different treatments go into breast cancer. And even if you haven't had chemotherapy, you've most likely had a surgery. Um, you've most likely had some sort of radiation and hormonal therapy. So it's really hard to just narrow it down to one single treatment. So when it comes to the hormonal therapies, uh, since that's such a common treatment in breast cancer, there have been some studies, as you mentioned, that have compared people who have had just the hormonal treatment to just those that have chemotherapy or maybe chemotherapy plus hormonal treatment. And really the findings are mixed. So we don't really know yet. And But what we do seem to know is that the more treatments that one has, the higher their risk is for um, having some sort of cognitive change or symptom just because of the nature of kind of a cumulative effect of, you know, all of these things added together versus just one of those things or two of those things. So all of the treatments that people go through for breast cancer are all individually risk factors for cognitive vulnerability. And then, of course, synergistically, there's there's risk factors there. Okay. Now, I want to get into your research because it's so fascinating to me. How did you decide to study listening to music as a treatment for cognitive issues? Yeah. So this is um, actually a, a happy accident, <laughs> as I like to describe it. But what we were primarily interested at first was um, meditation. And you and you mentioned the meditation at the beginning of the podcast called Kirtan Kriya. And it's a type of meditation that involves, you know, visualization and also this, you know, mantra. So a saying of different sounds and some finger movements. And 
we saw in the literature that this type of meditation was really effective in people, older adults who had subjective cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment, and even some people who had some early signs of Alzheimer's in addition to their caregivers. So the, the findings that we were seeing in this other patient population seemed to be very promising. And uh, so we decided that we wanted to investigate, would this type of uh, meditation be beneficial to our, our breast cancer survivors who are having chemo brain? And we modeled our study based off of what these other investigators had done, and they had used uh, classical music listening as a kind of control condition. And, you know, the thinking being it would be controlling for just kind of general relaxation in terms of the meditation intervention and also listening to something. So in our meditation group, we had guided meditations and then the time. So uh, each of the groups did about 12 minutes of either the guided meditation or the listening to music. So we actually had it as a what we call in the research world, attention control. So controlling for attention and all these other factors of the intervention. And what we found afterwards was that the music group did just as good as the meditation group and even a little bit better in some of the psychological outcomes. So at first, we were a little bit disappointed in our choice for our, our control condition, but ultimately encouraged by the fact that we found two options for people um, that are low cost, really accessible, and seem to be pretty enjoyable to do. Um, so they, you know, these were our pilots. This is our pilot study, and it had some interesting and encouraging results. And since then, we've been looking, you know, we've tried to explain why did the music group do so well? And um, we've just, it's become clear and clearer why they did well, just in terms of how the literature supports how music can be beneficial to people's brains. And while we don't know exactly how it's beneficial, uh, there's a big initiative by the National Institutes of Health and National Endowments of the Arts to try to understand better why music is so good for our wellness and in you know the general population, but also in clinical populations. So we don't really know the mechanism, like we don't know what's happening physically in the brain that is helping. Right. So we, we have some educated guesses, um, but we're, we're not exactly sure of what exactly is causing the music to be beneficial. But some of these educated guesses come from, you know, we, we've started looking at um, musicians' brains uh, in terms of the science. And what we found is that people who have had, um, you know, a history of uh, being, you know, knowing how to play music, engaging with music throughout their lifetime have more robust brains in terms of their brains might be larger, a little bit more uh, what we call neuroplastic, meaning the, the brain structure is more flexible and adaptive than people who are not musicians. So that the neuroscience and music uh, research really kind of started in that place in terms of comparing musicians to non-musicians and some of their brain-related outcomes. And um, since then, we've seen music in terms of brain research be applied to the dementia population. So people who have dementia, there's been studies that show that they, uh, they might not be verbal or be that engaging with people um, in their environments. But if exposed to music from maybe their childhood or, you know, middle adulthood, they'll kind of brighten up and be more um, engaged and remember things and it's kind of sparking something in their brain. So there's a you know good amount of research supporting 
using music to invoke memories in people who have dementia-related diseases. And then in the oncology space, there has been an increase of using music and music therapy uh, to enhance people's um, emotional and psychological symptoms, mainly during treatment. There's a good amount of research there that improves maybe some of their depressive or anxiety symptoms or or sleep, and even um, some pain-related outcomes in terms of going through treatment. So music therapy is actually recommended by ASCO, uh, that's the American Society of Oncology. Um, yeah, it's recommended American by Society of Clinical I, Oncology. Well, yeah, <laughs> I missed one right there. <laughs> Used to looking at it, not right. saying it. All. Yeah. So it's recommended by ASCO um, in ter- to be used during treatment to um, to manage some of those psychosocial symptoms that uh, patients encounter, but it hasn't really been used in the uh, cognitive symptom space. So either during treatment or after treatment. So it's kind of a new avenue of, of research that we're excited to be at the beginning of because we we had some good results in our study. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And the well, I have so many questions now, but the time seems so short. I mean, 12 minutes really isn't that long to yeah. see a change. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like if somebody listened longer, could it be more beneficial? Right. Yeah. So um, we really just were kind of put our stake in the ground in terms of a starting point to to start this research. And we are definitely investigating some more into what what is the right dosage, you know, and what is the right dosage for each person because it's likely different. But really, if I had to guess, I think that it's the the regular exposure. So it's like that 12 minutes doesn't sound like very much, but it was the maybe that was part of the reason why people could do it every day for we asked them to do it every day for eight weeks. So that's 56 days in a row. Um, and, uh, and one of our participants shared at the end of the study and you know, we, we do exit interviews that I can do 12 minutes, but don't ask me to do more than 12 minutes. <laughs> and that's what we see with some of the other interventions that are available for chemo brain. You know, there's cognitive training or brain games, those types of things, or cognitive rehab. And a lot of times they ask people to do those for 30 minutes at a time, 45 minutes at a time, five days a week. Um, and that might just be too much time for people that it's not realistic for them to to work into their daily lives. But um, we've seen in the meditation literature that 10 to 12 to 15 minutes is enough time to see changes there in terms of practicing mindfulness. So again, I think it's it might be just a little bit often that is just as impactful as a lot, you know, less often. But we don't know. Maybe more is better. And we also don't know um, maybe you know, learning a music, not lis- or learning a musical instrument, not listening to music could be even more beneficial because it engages more parts of the brain. So we we definitely have a lot of questions now that we've got this, you know, preliminary evidence. Oh, sure. And in your study, it was classical music. Um, it was. Do you think any kind of music could be helpful or is there something particular about, I know classical music can be more complex than some other types of music. So I didn't know if that was it or if you think any kind of music could help. Yeah, I think the that I think something in between probably. It's probably not classical music, but I do think that there was something about there being no lyrics to the music um, in terms of 
know, we asked people to to sit and listen and um, they could have their eyes open or closed, but really just uh, kind of sitting and listening. And really it was kind of like a mindful music listening um, exercise. If there were lyrics or if it was familiar songs, you know, people's minds can go other places pretty easily. So we wanted that I think the no lyrics is probably important um, and that there is some element of complexity in, in terms of multiple instruments or you know, different characteristics like that, different sounds, layering of sounds. So um, music, if we think of it as a cognitive stimulation, you know, we want the right amount of stimulation. And, uh, and that is, you know, probably unique to the individual in terms of what type of music is pleasant for them to listen to, and then what type of music is complex enough. So I would say it's probably not classical music itself, but that if you like classical music, it's a good place to start. Um, but perhaps jazz or, you know, something else that's highly instrumental or even um, kind of modern electronic music has a lot of sounds and instruments and other types of um, non-lyrical stimulation to to engage with. So I've personally used this in, in my life since seeing these positive results. Um, I, there's a lot of free, like, focused related playlists on on platforms like Apple Music or Spotify or things like that um, that offer a nice selection of this type of, of music. But a long answer to say, no, it's probably not just classical music. And that I think that came from um, maybe a few years back, there was, have you heard of the Mozart effect? That Yes. Yeah. So it kind of came from that, like people having their babies uh, listening to Mozart and it makes them smarter. That's been a, a debunked a little bit. Um, but uh, so it's it's probably not just classical music. That's been so interesting. And I have to ask, this is kind of a personal question because I don't play an instrument. I am pretty much tone deaf. I can't <laughs> sing, but I've always loved music. And so I'm, so it's heartening to me to know that just listening to something can be helpful as opposed to actually being able to play it. Because when you talked about the brains of musicians, I'm like, oh, that'll never be me. (laughs) But that's helpful. You know, so so just the listening, not necessarily the playing is important. Yes. So um, that that's your question about mechanism. We don't know exactly the mechanism by how that is helpful, but we do know that, you know, we as humans have been exposed to music our whole life um, and our degree of liking that is is different. But when we hear musical sounds and songs, whether we know it or not, our brains are trying to predict what the next note or sound is going to be. It's just a it's something that happens whether we're conscious of it or not. So that's on a very kind of basic neuroscience level. That's one of the ways that um, music interacts with our brain functioning. It's always trying to predict and make sense of things. And when we look at some of the studies that have people in the um, MRI or fMRI scanners listening to music, the whole brain lights up. You know, it's totally engaging. So. I think that there's something very primal to music and something that has been a part of most people's lives. So we're unaware and subconscious of our our brain's ability to interact with that. Fascinating. Just fascinating. Yeah. So finally, I guess for our audience, if someone's listening, 
and they feel like maybe they're having some cognitive issues because either they're in treatment or they're left over from treatment, can they just start listening to music? You know, something obviously, as you said, without lyrics, so maybe ambient, classical, jazz, whatever is best for them for, you know, 12 minutes a day. And do you think that would help or does it have to be a really structured thing? No, I think start, uh, if if it sounds appealing to you, it sounds like something you would like to try, then try it. And if, if 12 minutes sounds like too much, start with five. I really do think a little bit often is the best place to start. And um, and you'll know after, you know, about a month or so if you're fine, if your symptoms are improving or if they're not, but it's definitely worth a try. And it's, it's a, it's, you know, we argue that this doesn't require any training, that it's very accessible. Um, so yeah, I would encourage people to, to give it a try. We have some resources. We made our playlists um, available publicly after we were finished the study. So those are available for people to try or just to set a timer on your on your phone or wherever you're at um, for however long you'd like to try to start to practice and just listen to some music. But I, I would also just say for people who are having cancer-related cognitive changes that there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not one treatment that's going to help all people. So if you try something um, in terms of what we recommend for people to to try and it doesn't work, then try the next thing. Next, you know, maybe meditation. If the music doesn't work, then maybe meditation works for you. Or, you know, it's also recommended exercise and brain games. So all of these things are are known to help um, some people. So you just have to figure out what is the right uh, fit for you. But music is a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Dr. Hennigan, thank you so much. This is, I, I feel like this is so simple and usually free that anybody could at least try it and and see if it helps. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.